this morning we are starting a brand new series entitled The God of Promises. And the reason why we have decided to name it the God of Promises instead of the Promises of God is because so often in churches and on websites and on devotionals, whenever you do anything related to the Promises of God, many times authors and preachers spend all their time on the Promises and not on the God of those Promises. And so we, we, we intentionally named this series not the Promises of God, but the God of Promises because we believe that is where our hope is ultimately found. And we want during these next 10 weeks to focus on God and who he is and what he's done and all these promises do. These promises are not powerful in and of themselves. They are only powerful because they come from him. Amen? Amen. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We are beginning the series by looking at what I believe is the most important promise in scripture. At the very least, it's the most foundational promise in scripture because every other promise in scripture is built on this Promise. According to 2 Corinthians, it says that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't get any of the promises unless we are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to be looking at the promise of pardon, or another way to put it, we are going to be looking at the promise of salvation. Because if you do not have salvation, if we do not have a relationship with God, then the rest of the promises really don't matter. And so that's why we're beginning with the, the promise of pardon, the promise of salvation. And just a little bit of background, the reason why we ended up choosing this series is because over the summer, actually a few months ago, not over the summer, over a few months ago, we were talking about the summer. We were discussing, hey, what series should we do? And Pastor Lon, who was here last week, um, was telling us that one of the things that God has used to get him through this season of cancer, for those of you who don't know, he has stage three cancer. One of the things that God has used has been his promises. And he said that the promises of God have been absolutely essential to him. And so when he brought that up, we said, well, why don't we do a series on the promises of God. And so that's kind of why we are where we are. So if this series doesn't end up doing anything for you, you can blame Pastor Lon, okay? Don't blame, <laughs> don't blame me. It's on him, all right? So promise of pardon, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you do not have a Bible, um, there are Bibles in that cart, white cart back there. You can go grab one there. And if you don't want to do that, the passage will be here on the screen behind me. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Here's what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but... Because of God's great love, because of his great love for us, God, now, let me, let me put it this, in the, in the King James, and I think in the NASB, the, the, what it actually says is, but God. In verse 4, it, in the Greek, it begins with, but God. And I want you to keep that in mind, because we're going to look at that later on. So essentially, the verse says, but God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's the word of the Lord. Now, like I said, this morning we are going to be looking at and unpacking the promise of pardon, the promise of salvation. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this, at this subject, this, this subject of, of salvation under two headings, okay? We're going to look at it under two headings. The first thing I want you to see that we're going to unpack in this passage is we're going to see our problem, and our problem is found in verses 1 through 3. And then what we're going to do after we look at the problem and really understand how serious it is, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at his promise, which is verses 4 through 10, okay? So we're going to look at our problem, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to conclude by looking at his promise, verses 4 through 10. So let's begin by looking at our problem. And I want to reread verses 1 through 3 because I don't really think we understand how bad it is, okay? Look what it says in verses 1 through 3. And I want you to be thinking about our problem. Have that be the lens by which you look at what's being read here, okay? Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so what I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 is I want you to start getting an idea of just how serious this problem is. The problem that you and I have is so serious that it actually has two layers to it. There are two layers to our problem, or two symptoms, if you will. The first thing that we're going to see as we look at this problem is I want you to see that our problem is revealed in our external conduct. Our external conduct is one of the ways you can tell that we have a problem. Okay, that's the first layer of the problem. The second layer of the problem, according to the passage, is not just our external conduct, but it's our internal condition, our internal condition. So you and I are so messed up. We are so wicked, so broken, so sinful, so depraved that we are messed up on two levels, our external conduct and our internal condition. And we need to look at both if we're really going to understand just how bad this problem is. So so the first layer I want to look at is I want to take a closer look at our external conduct, our our behavior. In this passage, there are a few words that tip us off, that kind of lean us towards this, this, this idea of external conduct. Because look what it says in verse 2. It says, in which you used to live. And the word live there in Greek is is not just uh, one day of your life. But the word there, live, is a pattern of life. Okay? It is a lifestyle. It is a path that you are continually walking down. That's what the word there, live, means in the Greek. Okay? So there you get to see some of our behavior. And then it gets worse because it says, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The word there followed in the NIV, in the English, isn't strong enough. In the Greek, the word there is not just, hey, you followed someone. No, it means to be enslaved to someone. It means to be mastered by someone or something. So what he's saying is that before you come to Jesus, and in a lot of situations, after you've come to Jesus... You are not following, you are enslaved, okay? You are enslaved. You are mastered by the world and by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And and who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? 
Satan. And I know that's a weird statement, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, but that phrase in Greek, of the air, what it does is it describes the space between earth and heaven. There's space. It's the, the air closest to the ground. That air is, is, is ruled by Satan, according to Scripture. God has this air, the air up here, but the, the air in between earth and heaven is ruled by Satan. Okay? So, so this passage is telling us that our external conduct is so messed up then not only do we live sinfully, right, it, the pattern of our lives, but we are mastered, we are enslaved to the world and to Satan. This is bad. This is really, really bad, okay? But, but here's, here's the thing. A lot of us, we don't look at it that way. And, and I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians, people who follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. We always minimize and relabel and, 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 and misdiagnose the problem. Listen, your problem is not low self-esteem. Your problem is not taxes. Your problem is not Trump. Your problem is you. Your problem is your sin. Your problem is your depravity. Your problem is the world. Your problem is the flesh. Your problem is the enemy. Don't misdiagnose the problem because when you misdiagnose the problem, you go looking for the wrong solution. That's your problem. That's my problem. It's much deeper than something political or something relational or something, or something uh, financial. Much deeper than that. The problem is way worse than what you think. And if you still don't believe it, give me a few minutes and I'll convince you. Here's the thing about our world. Our world is experiencing the symptoms of this problem, but the reason why they don't go to Jesus is because they're misdiagnosing the symptoms. They think it's something else that's causing the issues. Just this past week, we had two celebrities commit suicide. Two of them. So, so Kate Spade, the designer, committed suicide, and then Anthony Bourdain, the guy from uh, the Travel Network, the Travel, uh, whatever, the Food Network. CNN. Whatever. Say so, that. Yeah, you guys know. <laughs> But two, two people took their lives, okay? Now, here's what, I don't want you, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. I'm not saying that there isn't such thing as chemical imbalances because there are. As a result of the fall, we have chemical imbalances. And some people, because of those chemical imbalances, they need medicine and they need doctors, and that's, I get that, okay? So that might have been part of the issue. But at the deepest part, at the root of the issue, the reason why those people took their lives is because they didn't understand verses 1 through 3. They thought their issue was something other than sin. And so the reason why suicide was an answer, not Jesus, was because they really didn't understand the problem. Or maybe they did understand it for the first time. And all the money and all the wealth and all the fame couldn't mask it. You know that, I read this article, I think it was in the Washington, in the Washington Post this week. It said that the United States, instead of America the Great, the, the name of the article was America the Medicated. And it said that the United States is by far and away the most medicated nation that's ever existed. Like, it's not even close. And, 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 and I don't mean just health for health reasons, so like diabetes and obesity and all that stuff, right, heart issues. But, but, but even with antidepressants, the most medicated nation by a mile is the United States of America. Why? Obviously, there's chemical things. Obviously, there might be some imbalances there. That's the, the, the fall. But at the deepest root, the root of the issue is this. It's sin. We're broken. We're depraved. 
And we go to medicine, we go to people, we go to doctors, we go, we try to fix the issue with more self-esteem and more self-talk and more books and more, no, 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 listen, you can't fix the issue because you're the issue. Not America the great, America the medicated. Because people are starting to get an understanding that even though we are by far and away the most uh, uh, affluent nation, it's almost like we, we, we've gotten further than other nations, so we have more money than everyone, and we've understood that that's not the answer. So if this isn't it, then what is it? It's bad. I remember before I became a Christian, one of the things that I would do all the time was whenever I would even have anything remotely close to these symptoms, I, it was almost like before Jesus, I had this bucket, and I was always trying to fill the bucket. And so I tried women, and then I tried popularity, and then I tried grades, and then I tried sports. And, I, and it was almost like the bucket would be filled, but there was always a hole at the bottom of the bucket, and nothing can satisfy me. Nothing worked. And I tried for a long time. Honestly, I, I never came to Jesus because I felt bad for my sin. I, I came to Jesus because my life was purposeless. I had tried everything else. Nothing else worked. So a lot of people come when they're at the bottom and something crazy happened. I wasn't at the bottom. I had tried everything. and I'm like, nothing else works. Let me try that. That's the world we're living in. This is the problem we have. And anyone who's told you that you have any other problem but this, there, there are other problems, but anything deeper than this, you are not dealing with the right, correct, biblical issue. And here's the thing. There are barriers, I believe, in light of this passage, there are barriers that keep us from admitting that there's a problem. So, for example, when you look at this passage, you have, you have three enemies that are trying to keep you from doing this. Because he talks about the flesh, talks about the world, and it talks about the enemy. We talked about this a few months ago. I don't know if you guys remember, but we said that before you came to Jesus, you only had one enemy, okay? His name was God. And he was an enemy who loved you, he was benevolent, and was willing to send his son to die for you. So it was one enemy who loved you. Now that you are in Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus, you have three enemies that hate you. The world, the flesh, and the enemy, Satan. They despise you. Just last night, I was on a pastoral call, and I was talking to this guy who's struggling with a lot right now in his life, and he tells me, you know why I get so angry at God? Because every time I try to take God seriously, every time I try to put God at the center of my life, everything falls apart. And I'm like, well, duh, because when, you're, when you have Satan at the center of your life, when you have the world at the center of your life, Satan has nothing to do against you when you're, when you're with him. When you put God where he belongs, all of a sudden you go from one enemy who loves you to three enemies that hate you and want to destroy you. So, of course, things are going to get harder when you try to live for God. Of course. In light of this passage, it's the only way that things will go if you try to live for Jesus. So, so, so we, we have these enemies who are constantly pushing up against us, trying to stop us. The other thing is not just our enemies, is the examples. Everybody in the world is going that way, and God's telling us to go that way. The whole world is going that way. Just, just, just the other day, I was, uh, I'm taking this seminary class uh, in Genesis, and we were looking at Genesis 1 through 3. 
And we were talking about the concept of work. And one of the, my classmates, we were doing this, uh, this online blog thing where you kind of respond to each other's stuff. And he made a really good point that I had never thought of. He said, look, in light of the fall, when Adam and Eve sin, Eve's curse is that she's going to experience pain in childbirth. But Adam's curse is that now he's going to have to work and toil in order to, to produce anything. Right? And when he brought up something I, I never thought about, he said, listen, I hate, he's like, I so often, I struggle with my job. I, I, I don't like it. He's like, and I always thought that was just normal. But he's like, in light of Scripture, the only way I should be viewing work is as a good thing that I get to do for the glory of God. And so if you, work, you view work as anything other than a good thing, you just show, it shows you just how much the world is already influencing you. That, it just shows you. Because I, that's how I feel sometimes. I'm like, oh, man, I got to go do this. Oh, man, I got to do this. And the reality is, is that I'm acting more like the world because the world is going that way and God's telling me to go that way. So even as something as simple as how you view work is affected when it comes to this. Okay? So, 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 so we, we, are, we are dealing with barriers that if we don't address them, we are not going to be the people that God is calling us to be. And then the other thing is this. It's not just the enemies that, the, our enemies that keep us from that. It's not just the examples around us, but it's also the fact that we're enslaved. Because remember what I said, verse 2 says, in which you used to live when you were enslaved to the ways of this world, when you were mastered. Listen, a lot of Christians in here are just as mastered now as they were before they came to Jesus. So, you, so, so Jesus is your savior up here, but money is your savior here. Women are your savior here. Success is your savior here. Education is your savior here. We are still enslaved. And listen, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, like if you're sitting here and you're like, you know what? I'm still, I'm still considering this whole Christianity thing. I don't know, I don't know if, this is, you know, if this is for me. I'm, t- I'm still trying to figure it all out. You're not kind of enslaved. You are totally enslaved. You're not free. Nobody here is free. You are mastered and enslaved by something. Okay? That's the issue. So so that's the first layer of our problem. The first layer of our problem is the, the external conduct. But the second layer to this problem is our internal condition. Our internal condition. Because look, it's not just our behavior that's off. Look at what it says in verse 1. As for you, you were dead. Everybody say dead. 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 As for you, you were dead. That's not just conduct. That's a condition. That's an internal condition. And then if you go to the next slide, you see that there's even more to be said about our condition because it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Listen, you and I, we're sinners not just by nature because we're born into it. We are sinners by choice because the moment we get an option, we sin. So we are sinners by nature and by choice. And the only thing that you get, the only response that is biblical to that is wrath. It's the only thing you deserve. Don't ever tell God to give you what you deserve under any circumstances because you don't want to see it. Trust me. Okay? 
So, so go back to the previous slide. What you see with the word dead and then that phrase by nature, you see that it's not just an external conduct problem. It's an internal condition problem. Our problem is so bad that it affects us at both levels. It affects our behavior, but it also affects our, our nature. And, and, and here's why the word dead is so important. Here's why the word dead uh, separates Christianity from every other religion, okay? Because every other religion will, will use the word sick, but no other religion will use the word dead. And let me give you the list, just in case you're kind of confused on what religions I'm talking about. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Catholicism. Every other religion outside of evangelical Christianity will tell you, yeah, you're really, really sick, but no other religion will tell you you're dead. Here's why, here's why. Because when you're sick, there's something you can still do about it, okay? So when I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me I'm sick, and whether that's with a cold or with bronchitis or even cancer, there's still something I can do. There's, there's chemo I can take. There's medicine I can take. There's antibiotics I can take. Sickness, there's degrees to sickness, and you can do something about it depending on what degree you're at. The problem with dead, though, is that there's no degree to dead. So it doesn't matter if you died from a gunshot or if you died from cancer or if you died from old age. Dead is dead. There's no layers to this thing. There's no degrees to death. Religious people love the word sick because sick means I can do something. Dead means only Jesus can do something. Listen, we don't need rehabilitation. We need resurrection. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's how serious this is. That's, that's how bad this issue is. And until we call it what it is, and when, when we try to act like we're just sick, we will go and try to fix a problem that only Jesus can fix. And, and, and again, I, the reason why I brought the, the Catholicism thing is not to throw anyone under the bus, but just in light of what Catholics teach, a Catholic will tell you, hey, you're really, really sick, and you fix that. You can get God's favor if you, if you get your first communion, if you do your baptism, if you get married at the church, if you go see a priest, if you go to mass. There's a bunch of steps. And if you do them, then maybe. That's not Christianity. We're not sick. We're dead. Like dead, dead. We are dead. And just to prove how dead we are, I, I want to read you this quote from Jared Wilson. Here's what he says. He's one of my favorite pastors. He's a pastor over in Vermont. And he says, uh, Ephesians 2, listen to this, 1 through 3, is just brutal. He says, Paul pulls no punches. How bad are we? Really, really, really ridiculously bad. He said, according to these three short verses, we are, apart from Christ, dead. Dead, Paul says. Like, you know, like, dead, dead. But wait, we think. I sure didn't feel dead. I can do stuff. Oh, yeah. You mean like obeying your appetites, verse 3, following the way of the world, verse 2, and worshiping Satan, verse 2? Good job there. It doesn't get worse than this. We are dead, belly-ruled, world-following, devil-worshippers. 
The curse we both suffer and embrace has us hemmed in on all sides. There is no escaping. We are much, much worse than we think we are. So however bad you think it is, it's way worse than that. It's like the hula. How low can you go? However low you think you can go, it's way worse than that. Way, way worse than that. Listen, we don't need rehabilitation. We need resurrection. We don't need good advice. We need repentance. You know, one of the things that bothers me, when people say, oh, you know, every other, every other religion is a religion. Christianity is a relationship. And no, 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 it really isn't. No, no, it really isn't. There's religion, and the other option is not relationship. It's religion and rescue. Okay? Because a relationship would, would say that I, I, I could go be in a relationship with Jesus. No, 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 you can't. Because even the fact that you're considering Jesus means that Jesus is already making you alive to him. So it's not religion and relationship. Christianity is a relationship. Well, eventually it becomes that, but it's not a relationship at, at, at its core. It's not religion versus relationship. It's religion versus rescue. It's religion versus resurrection. That's what Christianity is. That's how bad the situation is. So, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we fix this? The reality is we don't. We can't. We can't do anything because we're dead. Like dead, dead, like he says. And the only thing that we do is obey our appetites, follow the way of the world, and worship Satan. That's what we're good at. That's our thing. So if our issue isn't Trump and our issue isn't taxes and our issue isn't education and our issue isn't our, pe- our lack of pedigree or background, then, then, then if our issue is sin, then all of a sudden we're left in a place where we can't look into ourselves. We have to look outward because there's no solution in, in ourselves. And listen, as bad and as bleak as verses 1 through 3 is, we have to go there. We have to go to the depths of verses 1 through 3 if we're going to understand the beauty of verses 4 through 10. We have to. Look, look how Martin Luther puts it. Martin Luther said this. He said, and not, not the black Martin Luther, the German one. He, he, says the, the, he says, the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. See, everyone loves salvation. Everyone wants salvation. But no one wants to recognize their sin. But until you recognize your sin, verses 1 through 3, then and only then can you start to experience salvation, verses 4 through 10. So listen, listen, the problem is bad. Way, way worse than you could have ever imagined. But what we're going to see now is that the promise, the solution, is way more glorious than we could ever have hoped. Look at, let's put the two points back up. So we've seen our problem. And the question is, what, what hope do we have? And we find that hope in his promise. Look what it says in verses 4 through 10. It says this, But God, I'm going to read it like it says in the King James, But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and 
God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from uh, yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, the word there, handiwork, is poem or masterpiece. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, this promise, even if verses 1 through 3 never existed, this promise is ridiculous. But when you look at the promise in light of the problem, it's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. If it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. Okay? Now, now just like where we were looking at the problem, we decided that we were going to look at the problem under, under two layers. Uh, there was two layers to the problem. The, the first layer of our problem was our external conduct. The second layer was our internal condition. What I, what I want to do, got to get this piece of paper. Right? Sorry, that, that bothered me. I'm uh, sorry. So, so we looked at, we looked, I'm OCD. So, so we, looked at, we looked at the internal, right? We looked at the internal, the external conduct. That was part of the problem. And then we looked at our internal condition. So now the question is, what's the promise? And the promise, just like the problem, has two layers to it. And both layers are equally as important. So I want to split them up because I think that we will only understand how beautiful and incredible this promise is, is if we look at it under these two headings, okay, under these two parts. The first layer of this promise is his motive, God's motive, God's motive. And the second layer of this promise is his method. So we're going to look at his motive, and then we're going to look at his method. And both of them, uh, seen together, are just extraordinary, okay? So the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see God's motive when it comes to this promise. And we see it because here's what I want you to say, God. I want you to see. Remember what I said? The NIV does this weird because it's really, verse 4 in the Greek is, but God. But God. Now, I, I will go, I, I know I tend to exaggerate, but I will go out on a limb and say this. I believe that verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, those two words are the most undervalued, underutilized words in all the Bible. See, when a lot of people struggle with anxiety, when a lot of people struggle with issues and suffering or whatever they're wrestling with, they use a lot of passages, right? They use fear not, and they use be still. Other two-word verses. The problem with fear not and be still is that you're doing something. And a lot of times we can't do either. We can't not fear and we, cannot be st- we can't be still. But I would argue that the two most important words in Scripture are the, verse, the two words here. Listen, the next time you're going through something, the verse you got to go to is not be still or fear not, but this one, but God. Here's why this is so ridiculous. Because it doesn't look like it's that bad. If you look at your Bible, the distance between verse 3 and verse 4 doesn't seem that long, right? It's right there. They're right next to each other. But the gap between verse 3 and verse 4 is infinite. The, the way I described it in the first service is it's, it's like the Grand Canyon size, right? So, so, so let's say that the Grand Canyon is, I don't know, four or five miles wide, whatever it is. There are people who will say, you know what, man, I know I'm verses one through three, but I'm going to just run, 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 run. I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to just jump and get to verse four. The problem is is that no matter how spiritual or religious you are or athletic you are, you jump about 15 feet. 
Mother Teresa probably jumped 22 feet. But I tell you what, if Mother Teresa tried to do it in her own strength, just like her, you're at the bottom of the canyon. It's too big of a gap. The gap between verse 3 to verse 4 is too big of a gap. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can get there. No matter how religious you are, no matter how great you think you are, nobody, nobody can get there. And that's the point. That's why verse 4 starts with, but God. And what's crazy is when you look at God's motive, the only motive that makes sense is the end of verse 3. Because it says, by nature, we were deserving of wrath. The only thing that should be motivating God is his wrath. It's the only response to verses 1 and 3, through 3. That's the only thing that a righteous God should do. He should just give us wrath. Like literally, the, 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 the book of, of Ephesians should end after verse 3. That's where the story should end, logically. That's the only motive. That's the only emotion that God should be showing in light of how broken and sinful and depraved we are. It's the only thing we deserve is wrath. And that's why but God is that much more incredible. Because in light of the darkness, the light shows up. It's the most amazing two words in all of Scripture. But God. And so listen, I'm not sure what you're going through. I'm not sure what you're dealing with, whether it's a prodigal or whether it's a disease or whether it's bankruptcy. Whatever it is that you're going through this week or this month or this year, I want you to look at it and say, but God. Not be still, not fear not, because that's on you. But God. Because he's the only one that can do something about what you're struggling with. Okay? So it says, but God, and look, look, look what he's motivated by. This is, this is crazy. It says that he's motivated by three things. His love, his mercy, and his grace. Because it says, because of his great love, and then it says, who is rich in mercy, and then and at the end of verse 5, it is by grace. So the three things that motivate God to make this promise is his love, his mercy, and his grace. Now let me define each one of these, because a lot of times the biblical definition of words help us to understand what it really means. The word love there is the word agape, which is the one-way, unconditional love of God. It's nothing that you do, it's everything that he does. It's the one-way, unconditional love of God. The word mercy is, is the way the, 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 the word study puts it, the word mercy is uh, kindness and goodwill and or goodwill directed towards someone who's in need. That's what the word mercy is, right? So kindness and or goodwill directed towards someone who's in need. And then the word grace is the unmerited favor of God. Those are the three words that we see here in this passage. But a few years ago, maybe a couple years ago, I was at this conference and, and, and the, the speaker at the conference did this illustration that was just mind-blowing to me. He said, listen, there's a very big difference between mercy and grace. And it's, as crazy as it sounds, mercy is not enough. And, and I'll explain to you why in a second. He said, he, let, let me explain it to you this way. He says, let's pretend that someone breaks into your house. So you're out of town or you're at the store and someone breaks into your house and they just rob you blind. Like there's nothing, nothing left, right? When you get home, he said, well, the first thing you can do is call the cops. That's justice in scripture. Justice is giving the person what they deserve, right? Call the cops, get them in jail. That's justice. He says, mercy is this. Mercy would be, instead of calling the cops, you just ask the person, put the stuff back, and I won't call the cops. That's mercy. So mercy is, instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. I'm not going to call the cops, right? He says, but grace is totally different. Grace is, not only is it not calling the cops, but grace, he says, is giving them the keys to the house and moving out. That's grace. 
So if all we got was God's mercy, then mercy would be great, but we would just be back at zero because God wouldn't give us what we deserve. But the thing about grace is that God doesn't does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us the key to the house and he leaves. What? So you, you, you got to process this. You got to let this wash over you. You got to preach that to yourself. We don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe in God's grace. I don't. God's grace is for unbelievers? Well, exhibit A here. Because I don't believe it. That's why I got to preach it to you every week, because I don't believe it. Every week I forget what I preach, and I go try to find my acceptance and my approval and my love in other people other than Jesus. But if God's grace, mercy is already mind-blowing enough, but if God's grace is true, everything changes. Everything has to change. It has to. So, so the first layer of this, of this promise, the first layer of this promise is we see his motive. God is motivated by his love. God is motivated by his mercy. God is motivated by his grace. So once we see God's motives, that's the first layer of this promise. The second layer of this promise is even more incredible because his motives lead to his method. The method by which he expresses his motives is absolutely ridiculous because in the passage, it says that, verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. Then uh, in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. And then it says he seated us with him or Christ. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we look at the method, the mode, it's, it's already mind-blowing enough that God didn't respond with wrath, which is what we deserve. But then when you look at the mode, the method by which he expresses his motive, it's even more unbelievable. It really is. Because it says that three things there. It says that we are uh, alive with Christ, we are raised with Christ, and we are seated with Christ. Now, here's why the English language is terrible. Because the English language does not capture what is going on in the Greek. Here's the thing about the Greek. Both the verb, the three verbs, alive, raised, and seated, in the Greek, they all have a prefix that comes before them, before each one of those verbs. And, and Paul's literally making languages up. Like, he's literally rewriting Greek, putting words that didn't exist before as he writes this, because it's so unbelievable what this passage is saying. So, 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 so think about it. The word alive, the word uh, uh, raised, and the word seated in the Greek have a prefix, a Greek prefix, and the word is sin. But not the sin that we think of, S-I-N, but S-Y-N, which is the word we get synonym from in English. The word sin. And the word, that prefix sin, S-Y-N, means together with, united with. That's what it means in the Greek. So he takes the, makes three words up in Greek and puts the word sin, S-Y-N, in front of it. And it says, we have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. We are united with Christ. So think about this. Think about this. God takes our sin from verses 1 through 3, S-I-N, and he deals with it with his sin, verses, uh, uh, verses 4 through 10, S-Y-N. He deals with our sin with sin. He overcomes S-I-N with S-Y-N. You are nobody. You are broken. You are sinful in and of yourself, S-I-N. But with Christ, in Christ, S-Y-N, you are given everything you don't deserve. Whoa. So you, you, you're, you're looking at this, and, and this isn't even the most amazing part. And as I was studying this passage, I, I was literally blown away by this. Those, all those, those phrases, so made alive with Christ, uh, uh, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, the English kind of gets it, but, but here's what's happening in the Greek. All of those words are in the past tense. 
Every single one of them is in the aorist tense. They're all in the past tense. Why is the past tense so important? Because what it means is that those things aren't going to be true of us. Those things are true of us right now. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion because every other religion has to use the future tense or the present tense. The, the, the Judaism, Islam, Catholicism, Buddhism, all of them, they have to use the present tense. Hey, if you try really hard, maybe you'll be seated with Christ. If you try really hard, maybe you'll be made alive. If you do everything you can, then maybe, maybe you'll be seated with the deity. But in Christianity, it's not present tense. It's not future tense. It is past tense in Jesus. It's done. So I'm not, I'm not, it's not that I might be seated with Christ. I'm seated with Christ right now. Legally, I am in Christ. I am with him. Everything that's true of him is true of me. God sees me the same way he sees him. That's crazy. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we have to believe. That's what we have to lean into. If you don't believe it, if you think that in any way, shape, or form you earn it, then you are in religion mode, not in resurrection mode. That, that's what this, what this is saying to us. It's, it's, the only, it's the only way. And you know what? The, the, out of all the three, the one that most stood out to me this week is the word seated. Because it's saying God raised us up to, with Christ, and then it says he seated us with Christ. The, the phrase there, seated, to us, that doesn't really mean much. What, okay, he's seated at the right hand of God. What's the big deal? But in those days, to ancient people, when a hero or a conqueror sat down, it was the ultimate sign of victory. It meant that all the work was done. There was nothing else to do. So what would happen is, let's say you were a general and you went out and you won a, a major war or a major battle for your, for your king. When you got back, what everyone knew what would happen is that king would take you and he would sit you at his right hand. It meant that the, the war was over and that now you had nothing else to do. That general wouldn't fight again. It'd be done. Because he won. So, so think about this. Think about this. Him being seated means that the work is over. That the victory is won. And if we are seated with him then we are no longer in defeat. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's beautiful. Listen, if that doesn't change you, you don't have a pulse. If that doesn't change you in the moment, if that doesn't change the way you view everything, you're not listening. You're not hearing what the Bible is saying. You're not getting what Paul's trying to tell you. This is, this is just, it's crazy what, what, what's happening here, guys. And then, and, then, and then here's what's, what's even more amazing. If you go to the last slide of the passages, he says that um, uh, at the end, he said, verse 9, but not by works so that no one can boast. Now, here's the thing about boasting. When we think of boasting, we think of someone who's super prideful. We think of someone who's always self-promoting and always making it about dumb. But in Greek, the word there, boast, doesn't, a lot of times, it almost has nothing to do with you. Here's how the word boast was used back then. In ancient times, whenever you would boast in something, it was almost always something other than you, something, uh, someone else or something else. And here's usually the context in which it was used. Warriors, before they would go out to fight, what they would do in order to get each other motivated is they would boast. But they wouldn't boast in, in themselves. They would boast in their general. They would boast in their horses. They would boast in their numbers. They would boast in their weapons. Boasting back then, the way it was used, the word, the way it was used is not about you. It's something, it's something that you trust in more than you, something that you rely on more than you. That's what boasting was. We've made boasting about us, but back then, boasting was not used in that context. Okay, so he's saying that now because of what Jesus did, we can no longer boast in ourselves or in something smaller 
uh, something in creation, the only thing we can boast in in light of Galatians chapter 6 is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my banner. That's my weapon. That's my army. That's my strength. The cross is the only thing I can boast in. All other boasting is gone, done. The cross is the only thing I can boast in now. And then the phrase that you see, you don't even have to move the, because it's all over the passage, but you see it in verse 10, in Christ Jesus. All throughout this passage, you see the phrase, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Did you know that in the Bible, the word Christian is used to describe believers, I don't know, maybe a handful of times, but the word in Christ is used hundreds of times. So when Paul's talking about believers, he is statistically more likely to describe a believer as in Christ instead of Christian. Here's why I think that's important. Because when, the word Christian literally means little Christ, like little people who look like Christ. The, the, the problem with that phrase Christian is that it, it kind of depends on you a little bit. I got to look like Jesus. But that's not the word that a New Testament uses to describe us the majority of the time. The phrase is in Christ. Here's why that's important. Because when you look at someone and they say, hey, well, here's what I want to challenge you to. The next time someone says, hey, what faith do you believe in? I don't want you to say you're a Christian. I want you to be like, oh, I'm in Christ. They're going to be like, what? What does that mean? Oh, oh, well, here's what it means, that everything that's true of me at the cross became true of him. And by faith in him, everything that's true of him became true of me. So I'm in him. So when God sees me, he sees him. And so everything he won is now mine. I'm in Christ. See, Christian can be about you, but in Christ can only be about Jesus. And that's the thing about this promise, that the gap between verse 3 and 4 is so big that one of the temptations that you might be able to make is, well, well, it must not be that big of a deal. It must not have cost anyone anything because in my Bible, verse 3, verse 4 follows verse 3. There's no gap at all. But the gap was so big that someone had to bridge that gap, and the person who bridged that gap was Jesus. At the cross, here's what Jesus did for you. At the cross, Jesus Christ, he experienced the punishment that verses 1 through 3 deserved, so that by faith in him, we might get the blessing that verses 4 through 10 deserves. At the cross, Jesus experienced rejection, so that by faith in him, we might experience resurrection. That's, that's the gospel, guys. That's, that's what had to happen. At the cross, Jesus experienced the depths of verses 1 through 3 so that we might experience the heights of verses 4 through 10. It might, the promise is free to us, but it was very costly to him. Someone had to pay that price, and praise be to God, it wasn't us. That's what I'm telling you. If the motive is ridiculous, then the method is even more so. Because the fact that God even decided to respond with love, grace, and mercy is mind-blowing enough. But then when you think about the method that he sent his son Sometimes one of the ways you can tell the value of something, like there's things that you look at, you're like, oh, that's not that valuable. And then you hear the price of it, you're like, oh, dang, that's valuable. And it's still ugly, but you found out the price. <laughs> Listen, a lot of you are ugly, okay? And me too. But the reason why we're valuable is because of the price that was paid, not because of us. You look at the price tag and you're like, what? He paid that for you, for me? That's what God did. And the last thing I want you to see is this, verse 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork. The word there, handiwork, it means masterpiece. It means poem. So here's what this means, guys. 
if you're sitting here, there's people sitting here right now this morning, and you're like, you know what? I, I, I appreciate Christianity. I'm thankful that it exists. But you know what? It's, it's just not for me. And, and, and the reason why is because you have no idea how bad I am. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what's been done to me. I'm broken. I'm, I'm sinful. I'm depraved. I, I just, I, I, there's no hope for me. And the beautiful thing about that word, handiwork, poem, masterpiece, is that when God rescues you, here's what he's telling you. No, no, listen, you think it's bad, but it's way worse than what you thought, okay? But, but my solution is so glorious that I am literally going to take everything you've gone through, good, bad, ugly, your race, your gender, your background, your socioeconomic status, I'm going to take everything about you, and I'm going to make a masterpiece. I'm going to draw, write a poem of your life, and you're going to glorify me in a way that no other human being can because everything you've gone through is all the darkness, all the pain, all the sin you've gone through is to magnify the light and the beauty of the gospel now. So wherever you're coming from, however far you think you are, God is still writing his story in your life. And today could be the day that you come back to him. Listen, guys, to the degree that you are humbled by verses 1 through 3, to that same degree you will be lifted up by verses 4 through 10. And to the degree that you see your need for Jesus, verses 1 through 3, to that same degree you will embrace your union with Jesus, verses 4 through 10. Amen? Let's pray.